episode of Worst First. This is my first Zoom ever. My first Zoom, uh, not ever, but podcast. I don't typically do that. And I'm here today with my guest, Bob Saget. I'm so excited to have you here. As I did clapping. I. You can't hear it. I did. There's clapping going on. I love it. Um, thank you for being here and thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. I mean, and Worst I, First, I, 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 I wrote a book about it. You know, it's... it's uh, you did. What was your book called? It was called Dirty Daddy. It was a... Uh, Dirty Daddy. It was, yeah, man, it was, a, it was actually a New York Times bestseller. He said self-promotionally. But it it really dealt with uh, comedy and death and how they intersect throughout my life. Oh, my life. God, that's the truth. And do you stuff. have any kids? I have three daughters that are... three daughters. Um, that I know of that are, that are uh, 33, 31, and 28. Well, that's why we brought you here today, Bob, because I'm one of your fourth daughters. <laughs> I want, please say hi to your mom and tell her. Can you her imagine that- if all of a sudden it was just like a Amari episode and I was like, hi, it's me, Katrina, your secret <laughs> daughter. I Bring her out. Worst first. Bob Saget finds out he has another daughter. Um, I'm your no, Katrina, you your life, your life hurricane. Right. It's um, always good to do a hurricane reference when you start. It always makes people so happy because the world right now, a hurricane is mild compared to the rest of the world issues. Uh, not I know. really. It's not, you know. Well, all, things are very hard right now. You're st- and you're only doing Zoom podcasts. That's what they told me. You're not meeting anyone in person. So you're taking no. everything very seriously, which is great. I did a couple of, of those game shows. I did like to tell the truth with Anthony Anderson. I was on Masked Singer, but to do that, it was crazy amount of protocol. You know, they had everybody safe. You know, so yeah, they are very careful with that. Um, so we're gonna dive right in. I I really love to get to bring people on here to talk about some of the worst things that have ever happened to them in their life. And I know some people, I get some people on here that say, uh, you know, I had a great life and not really anything that bad has happened. And I hate those people. So well, they're in denial. Like, I mean, they're, they're in denial. I'm like, yeah. come on, nothing, not even getting bullied, nothing. Right. What um, about but, your breach birth? <laughs> right. What about the umbilical cord around your neck? You know, right. what about when you wore those ugly pants in high school? And that was horrible. So I wanted, I'm, you said you wrote your, your book, you highlighted a lot of the hard things that went on in your life. Yeah. And so I don't know what you want to start with. I'm going to kind of let you go. Well, there, you know, everybody right now, especially has more horror than they've had um, pretty much ever um, for a lot of people. And isn't it weird that even though they're older and then they're nineties, but people are every day, three people are gone. Oh, yeah. Well-known people that we loved and some people that were like, well, okay, but, you know, but other people, it's just so tragic because for the older people, it's pretty finite right now, you know, because of because of the the COVID. I don't know if you heard about COVID, but it's it's a thing that's out. It's It's scary. I mean, I'm I've been really careful. I even have like glass set up in here. And have you lost anyone close to you? Um, I know people, but. Uh, they weren't directly close. I've had a couple of friends with it, several friends with it. Oh my god! Uh, one when it first came out in, in New York, and he was almost on a ventilator, and then at the last minute they were able to just use forced oxygen. But he's okay now, and he's a beautiful person, and he's young. Ooh. I mean, he's you know fifty. I mean, that's you know we don't want to be losing people. Um, no. 
And, so where and did I you, think where? a lot could be prevented, but that doesn't, that's, we want to talk about things that are the worst things I've had. And yeah. So I, where did you grow up? Like, I don't even know. I want to talk about your worst. I want to talk about where, where did you grow up? I was born in Philadelphia, but so then I moved. I, was, I grew up outside Philadelphia. Where? I grew up in Upper Bucks County. My sister was a teacher there, Gay Saget. Really? Um, I, I know it's a rough name. She, you know, she had a rough name, man. Um, I wasn't going to say it. I was no. going to say, hey, is she available for worst first next week? No, it's crazy. And then it's weird when you're talking, you know, I, I always go, it's a rough, it was rough, man, but you're not a man. So I don't, it's just a vernacular. I'm not even allowed to go, hi guys, to a group of all men and women. Um, well, yeah, and I feel like you can. I mean, if I, I, I'm seriously. coming from a good place with it, you know, I mean, anyway. Um, so you I grew up out in Philadelphia. To, I think I'm trying to cancel myself. Um yeah, I, I grew up in Philly. She was a teacher in Bucks County, a really good teacher. And um, I went to Temple University. But you went to Temple. Oh, wow. I, went to Ab I graduated Abington, but I was born in Philly. Then I moved. This is my worst first. I okay. never stopped moving. So oh. I went from Philly, and at about five or six, I moved to Norfolk, Virginia. And then I lived there till the middle of ninth grade. And my dad got transferred by Food Fair, Pantry Pride, Supermarkets because he was a meat executive, another worst first, and then went from there to Encino, California. Uh, didn't know anybody the second half of ninth grade. Couldn't take Algebra two because I wasn't taking it in Norfolk, Virginia. So I made no friends at Encino. I made a couple friends, but I, you know, and then between 11th and 12th grade, moved back to Philadelphia to Abington High School. So I didn't have any consistency and then lived at home for college and was a deli clerk. This is all worse first. And then <laughs> went to so, Temple University Film School. And then things started to look up. And then I, I uh, moved to LA in 78 when you were not even born. Not born yet. Not um, born. But wait, so how did you decide that you were going to get into comedy? It was all organic. And I was going to go pre-med. I, I even was planning to do that. Um, mm -hmm. But... I started writing songs, really bad ones, when I was like 14, 15. Uh -huh. And I would register them with the Library of Congress, you know, copyright them. And it was You're real... like, no one's stealing this song about potatoes. Oh, Hell it was no. so bad. It was like oh when God. I was a boy. I wrote a song about going to war because I had a cousin that had been in the Vietnam War. It was not, not oh good. God. And then... I started making movies, eight millimeter crap when I was like nine and made like 60 hours of movies. And then when I was in college, I did stand up. I won a radio contest with WMMR. Okay. Remember WMMR? Yeah, so they were kind of the hardest rock, uh, yeah. I guess, that was there. YSP was the other one. Tommy Lee would know. Uh, you know him. And, I kind of uh, know him, yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. And then I won this radio contest for a song about bondage. When I was 17 years old, I was writing comedy songs and everything was weird. And here I was looking like somebody's, you know, a dentist's child, um, you know, an accountant. And I was writing demented stuff. My comedy was always weird. And then I kept, then I did improv at the University of Pennsylvania with my friends in a group called Mixed Nuts. So that was when SNL Mixed first nuts. started. Wow. So then I, and then I also made movies at Temple and I won the student Oscar for a movie I made about my nephew getting his face reconstructed. So those were good things. Those were, those are all I, really great. But things. you asked me a question, I give you a 40 minute answer. I'm sorry. 
No, I love it. I actually love hearing your story because, I mean, obviously I grew up watching you on TV and, uh, you know, all over. Was I a dad to you? You know, you weren't, but... Um, Right, I, I wasn't I had cool a, enough, right? I had, a really great, I had a really great dad, so I didn't have you as a dad, but I did watch Funniest Home Videos. Like, that was my jam. Like, that right. was, like, all we watched. That was the funny... I mean, when you were on there, it was, like, the peak of Funniest Home Videos. Oh, was, thank you. I started it off. I was the beginning of the nut hit. That was my favorite show. I mean, my family and I, we would always watch that. That was, like, How to Get Your Laugh, you know what I mean? There was no YouTube. There was no, no internet. No, so you couldn't you go w- watch cat videos online. You had to I, wait for funniest I was, videos. Yeah, I was the gatekeeper of cats and nut hits. And- yes. Oh, my God, that's so funny. Okay, so you move to L.A., back to right. L.A. You start, you know, doing the grind. You're doing stand-up. You're, I'm hosting at the comedy store a lot for like six, seven store. years. Yeah. Okay, and so how did? what's your first big break? Um, I had a, a bunch of them. The first one was, I guess, Rodney Dangerfield's Young Comedian Special. Uh I guess I was 24, 25, and I became friends with Rodney, and I introduced him to Sam Kennison. That's all. Oh, wow. That's how old I am. And um, and then um, that was on HBO, so that that did well, but nothing really ever moved the needle until um until i started shooting up no that's not worse first i didn't ever shot did you up. shoot never up did. okay no, i'm like no. we can talk about that'll it be here. the quote because oh you're, you're you're quotable <laughs> your podcast is so quotable because the premise alone no and then so- um i guess i was in uh, one of my best things that happened was i was in a richard Pryor movie critical condition mm-hmm. um directed by, by michael apted who we just lost great director and so I had been friends with Richard from the comedy store, but then got even closer after this movie and then never thought I'd work again. I was de- my, I guess my worst first, and I know you do a lot about mental health and talk about it a lot. Um, is, is all more personal than, mm-hmm. um, than showbiz stuff. And you keep, uh, you, you, you have like self deprecation a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Is that I have kind of- self defecation as well. Cause I hate my poo. Um, so, so, but you, you're hard on yourself. And is that something that you've always struggled with? Like, do you feel like when you do well that you don't deserve it or that, you know, it's like imposter syndrome and that kind of thing? Cause a lot of people with depression no, feel like, no, no you don't my depression it. was, I, I just thought I was at the comedy store and watching all my friends go get TV shows, Howie Mandel, Arsenio, all the, all my friends, they were all leaving and I was still there hosting. Meanwhile, I was hosting, bringing out Eddie Murphy and Robin Williams and and Richard. And, you know, I was at the the best of the comedy people that are alive um, and not alive, unfortunately. And so, but, you know, everything you kind of look at and that's, you have to say it. I don't say it happened for a reason just because other people say that. It's so annoying. But I I wouldn't trade what I had, although the I wish I'd been able to cope better because I didn't even want to be alive in my 20s. Why? I was, I didn't, I want, I knew I was good. So when I, and I knew I wasn't there yet and I couldn't figure out how to be good. I wanted to be great because I was surrounded by greats. And then I would watch friends of mine excel to be just the best. And I was happy for him. Never jealous ever. But but sad because you knew you could. Sad because I, I wanted to do it. And I, and I, so I went to acting school for years and I kept directing, never stopped directing stuff. And then 
you know, work kind of fell upon me. It didn't, I, I didn't, the things I wanted the hardest, I usually didn't get. And the things that just came out of the air, I, that just happened, I did. Um, and then um, the hardest stuff that happened is I lost a sister. Uh, she was 34. And so uh, I was 28. So that's where my 20s were like, okay. And for about four years before she passed, she'd had a lot of mental health issues. And she'd also been culted by a cult a little bit. Oh, got like brainwashed by some uh, uh, More used than brainwashed. She was so fragile since she was young. She had epilepsy. She fell when she was like 15 and hit her head in a drugstore and had a seizure. And so that's the, uh, the worst first was dealing, which I know Very a lot lost. of people have dealt with with someone that you love or care about or yourself going through something beyond your control. Were you surprised by her death or was it sudden? Well, her death was sudden because it was an aneurysm, we think, but at 34 and she was recovering and she was lovely. I mean, really lovely. I mean, I loved her probably more than, I mean, about as much as you can love a person and we were very close. And um, so that was a, a worst first was, and we, I'd had death my whole childhood because my father lost all of his brothers at 37 and 40 from heart attacks. So it was a lot of death. It's like, how do you make a comedian or how do you make a, a artist, you know? Trauma. Just throw a bunch of shit at him, you know? Yeah. So I, it's like a it way was, to cope. And mental health is something that people... Really, even with her, we tried to do group therapy and my parents weren't, they're not around anymore, but they realized the error of their ways that they, you do group therapy and you help your family therapy. You help the person in trouble. It's hard for people to own stuff, you know? Would you say your parents were proactive in helping you guys when you were struggling with your mental health? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't on meds. I was actually just, you know, it was the early eighties. So I was at the comedy no, store with was, Sam really. Kennison. Right. Right. And, and Robin. So I mean, I was, you know, I was in my young twenties. I was just party boy and doing what I never got to do. Cause I lived at home till I was, till I graduated college. I was a super nerd, but uh, yeah, they were very supportive of me always, always saying that I was going to do special stuff. Not meaning like, you know, weird. You're going to be special, Bob. Yeah, You're going to yeah. be You're a fluffer be in porn. Real special. Like, Thank you, um, Mom. But, but I, um, uh, they were very supportive of my sister's dilemma. My mom helped to get her in. She was an administrative assistant at University of Pennsylvania, so they helped get her in the psych ward there. But psych wards are not... Um, you they're know not they cool. Are. Trust me, I've been in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're very scary. And, and uh, I know many, many people, especially now. Yeah. I t- I, what well, was I your experience? Well, I was... Within six, reason. You don't have to... Yeah, no. I mean, I don't mind. I t- I've talked about it before when I uh, on other my other podcasts. But um, yeah, I was 16 and I was really depressed. I lived with just my dad and my brother and I spent a lot of time alone. I didn't have a lot of friends and I just didn't want to be alive, but I also didn't want to kill myself because I felt bad for my dad because my dad always tried so hard to take care of us. And so I kind of felt bad. And so I started cutting because that was like a way to 
release endorphins um, without dying. And so I was cutting and I was hiding it and no one ever knew. And I was like the class clown. And then they were doing um, physicals at school because I went to public school and some kids couldn't afford to go to the doctor. So they would do mandatory physical for everybody. And I got called into the nurse's office and I was like, oh, fuck, because I knew they were going to like roll up my sleeves and my pants and they were going to see that I had cuts all over. And they did. And uh, they ended up making a really big deal about it, calling an ambulance, taking me to the hospital, putting me in a room that was all rubber blue furniture. It was literally made of rubber, so you couldn't, like, hurt yourself. And my dad was actually out of town at the time, and my aunt was watching us, and they couldn't get a hold of her. And so then a social worker came in and was like, hey, we can't get a hold of anyone in your family. Like, I think you need to be put into a facility. And so then they took me over to this horrible place and it was outside the city and it was just dilapidated. It was not well managed. It was dirty. Everyone there, it smelled like piss. It was just like nasty. The Did it have people that were criminals and stuff in there? Did it have It had it it not um well cuz I was young so I didn't go to like the adult one. I went to like one for juveniles. Um, so I was in the sour section with everyone was around my age, around like 15, 16 years old. But these were like, some of them were inner city kids that were just fucked. I mean, like, I hate to say fucked up, but they had, they'd been through some shit, you know what I mean? That would fuck anybody up. And so I wasn't on that level and they were just fucking gnarly. And I remember I would like, I was crying the first night and I've told this story on my podcast a thousand times. I was crying the first night. And I like couldn't be quiet. And the nurse came in and she was like, if you don't shut up, I'm going to put you in the quiet room. And she dragged me by my hair down the hallway and takes me to this like big metal door. And it says the quiet room on the outside and she opens it up. And then there's like a piss stained mattress on the floor. It's padded walls. And it was soundproof. It was a soundproof room. And that's where they put people who are being loud or disruptive to other patients. And it was fucking disgusting. And I just, It was just horrible. It was the most dirty, disgusting. The nurses were mean. No one was compassionate. No one was um, loving, you know, because like I feel like a lot of a lot of people at that point, you know, they need someone who understands them. They need someone who is a friend who can listen. They need connection. Yeah, they need connection. and, And they need who who put you there? The social worker. Oh, so you're so it wasn't done through a parent at all. No, because my your dad, da- they couldn't dad. get a hold of. They couldn't get a hold of my dad because he was on a business trip, and my uh, my aunt was watching me at the time, and they couldn't get a hold of her. So then they just they just threw me in there, and then that's when I got put on antidepressants, and I've been stuck on this an- same antidepressant since I was 16 years old because they got me. They put me on one that's um, super hard to get off of. It's called Effexor XR. I don't know. Do you take? You don't take anything. You don't have to share. No. If you don't. No. So. Good, I, good if I you. had them, I would share them with you. Yeah. No, I mean, not share with me, but <laughs> no, share oh, with everyone publicly. <laughs> no, um, I but I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I and then that one's so, just so did hard they to get tit- tr- try to titrate you off? That's what they mostly don't know. When you go into a psych ward, they give you just, they take you from zero to 500 milligrams. To, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they, they, they 50, drug 2, you. 2,000 milligrams yeah. rather than what it should be, but they can't because it's covered by insurance. So it's, yeah. I don't know what the health system's going to be. You've never taken any antidepressants? No. 
No, good I've for ta- you. I ta- mean, not the good for you because it's okay if people take them. Obviously, like they've changed my life in good ways and bad ways. Um, but that's amazing. You've never tried an antidepressant. You've just kind of what have you done when done stuff to sleep? You know, right? Of course, uh, taking, yeah. taking that Ambien. I was on for like ten years, and that was a destructive thing to be on. So you I have, got myself off of that. That was a big deal that I got Ambien myself stories? off. Oh God, it was like my kids would be here, and I'd be like. And taking out every lunch meat in the refrigerator at four in the morning. And and then I'd be on airplanes and I'd watch a person on it and I'd see how they moved around like, like Schmeagel and Lord of the Rings, you know, and they were just like, not know that they were on it and doing, and I went, okay, it's enough of that. And, and you get addicted to it and then you, then you, uh, you can't sleep. So you can only take, it's so tragic uh, what happens. That's sorry. I can't be a, use them as a sponsor. <laughs> No, you know, it's really, a lot of people don't understand with these drugs. It's like, and that's why I always try to warn people because I've tried, I've been on almost every antidepressant. And so I've learned which ones are, um, you know, really addictive and which ones are less addictive. So whenever someone is depressed and they feel like there's no other way and they have to try an antidepressant, I always suggest things that are easy to get off of like Lexapro or Prozac. But like the one that I'm on is one of the most difficult ones to get off of. Like your brain actually goes into physical withdrawal and it's really horrible. I'm sure similar to like what you dealt with with Ambien where you were just probably up for days and feeling confused and weird. It's like the, the whole thing. And I don't know if you agree with me on this is that I feel like pharmaceutical companies make these products to not make you better, but to get you hooked. To go, okay. I don't think so that's their main concern, but it is their money. It is yeah. how they make money. So, and it's funny. I was just watching a show about that. Um, uh, what was it? I, I, uh, uh, what's it called? With Kiefer Sullivan. Kiefer Something. Sutherland. Yeah, he, Kiefer Sutherland had a show. I always say his, I can't talk, but he had a show of Designated Survivor. It was some show okay. from a couple of years ago, and they had a whole thing about the, a drug company made a drug, got his got a, a Anthony Edwards' wife hooked on it. Spoiler alert, and um, and then they came out with a new drug that counteracts what that drug did. So, I mean, what are we talking about? You know, it's like, well, it's like, and I, I know you say, let's say they're not their MO, but like they would be out of business if they created drugs that cured people completely. Cause it'd be like, oh, you take this pill and it fixes all your problems and you never have to take it again. What does that do for them? You take it one time, they don't have you for life with the antidepressants. They make them in a certain way so that your brain craves more of them, just like any other drug. And then you have to keep taking it and taking it and taking it. And then if you stop taking it, you're even worse than you were before because your body's gotten so used to this supplement. So it essentially is like, I mean, I just think it's really fucked up. I, I, I think it's unbelievable that in 2021, we don't have, you know, a shot that can you know, help people that have depression in, in exponential ways where they don't have to take it all the time. Or but that- we're all made differently. That's the problem. Yeah. Because I know yeah. someone that has disassociative disorder and yeah. uh, a, a, uh, a depre- antidepressant, antipsychotic won't work. It really is therapy that does yeah. the job. And therapy is, um, if you're doing it right, is costly. Um, it's so costly. And, but it's the necessary thing. And some people go, I'm not getting therapy. I'd rather, I don't believe in it. It's like, really? You don't want to explore your brain and try to help yourself. But I understand it because it is a, 
Uh, that's expensive. But do you believe in therapy? You do therapy? Oh, I love therapy. I mean, therapy's I'll, I'll, great. I, I had a I had a worst first for you. All teed okay. up. This will be your soundbite. Okay. For the, for the for the promo, uh, the asset. <laughs> oh um, no! You're going to tell me a worst first therapist story, Dad. You're like the worst. It's why therapist. I went to a therapist. Okay. Uh, First thing, it was like I'm working with John Stamos for years and it doesn't matter doing what. We always wound up doing something together. And he's like, you need to go to therapy. This is enough. I can't listen to you anymore. Um, a podcast you is talk really to him good about for your someone. Well, I just talked and I've done it with you already. You know, a podcast is good for someone that talks about themselves a lot. Um, but I'm, I've always worked hard Actually, I enjoy listening more than I used to. That's why you're going to be on my podcast. So I get to have the exchange program and not only be in the, um, well, no, because you, you do what I do. You do conversations. And that's what that's what people need. And, and I think they need it bad, especially mm -hmm. now. They can, they have you to listen to and help. You're helping people, you know? Mm -hmm. So my worst first was when I knew I needed a therapist, I, I sat down at the computer I've been working really hard. I was, I was and, and lucky to be. I was directing, about to go direct um, a movie, and I was doing a television show. This is about 10 years ago. And I, I had a travel agent. I have people that do stuff that help me, but I was, well, I do it myself. You know, it's faster. I'll just do it myself. So I went on American Airlines, right? Sitting there. I couldn't, and I've talked to other people that have experienced this. It's when you know you got to get fixed. I couldn't fill out my name. I couldn't fill out the date. I couldn't function. It was like I had so many things I was trying to process that my brain just shorted out. And I always say I've been through a midlife crisis for 60 years, you know, and it's still continuing. But at that moment, when I'm looking at, I'm on the, the site for an airline and I can't fill anything out, I literally just called this doctor that had been recommended to me by a couple of people. And um, I started going a couple times a week. And uh, it took about four years. And I really sorted through, I think, what helped me through what is the rest of my life. Did they diagnose you with anything or tell you, like, what your main issue is? <laughs> Pretty much that I'm just fucking nuts. <laughs> I'm not but regular. In, like they didn't say anything in specific. They weren't like, "Oh, you have ADHD or you have borderline no. or you have nothing like that." If it was if I was um uh, not born when I was born, if I was born in the 20 years ago, they would have I would have been on Ritalin, you know, cuz I was always running around, always hyper. I I'm you know, you probably have similar stuff. My my stuff comes out at night, you know, when other people are sleeping sometimes. I'm doing what we shouldn't do, go for the phone, you know, go through stuff. Look at, I mean, how many new apps are there? It's like, oh my God. I mean, I'm on TikTok looking, I'm learning, I'm, I'm watching the news, everything you shouldn't do at night. Now there's um, Clubhouse, you can talk to people. It's like, oh my God, why do I want to talk to more people? <laughs> I know they say, honestly, and my therapist tells me this all the time, is that um, because I also am a night person and I, I'll sleep all day and stay up all night. Um, she always tells me, you know, before you go to bed, like an hour before you go to bed, you really need to put the phone down. She, she stressed that to me so many times and I really fought her on it because I'm such a phone person, obviously social media and that kind of thing. But I did realize that I, for an entire week, I put a book next to my bed, um, 
uh, my friend Kelsey wrote a book called Don't Fucking Panic. I have panic attacks. So I was reading right. that book and I kept it by the side of the bed. And I would read it for about an hour every night before I went to bed. And I had the best sleep of my life for that entire week. And so I try to do it as much as possible. I keep the book next to my bed. I mean, sometimes, obviously, we get caught up. You know, we're like, oh, I want to check this or check that. But that really helped me was reading. but Because it really just winds your thoughts down. It slows you down. It slows your brain down. But I'm with you. I feel you. I mean, social media has... Really just, I mean, you're, you're, all the stimulation, our, our brains aren't made for that. They're not no. made for that. And, and on top much. of the stimulation, everybody's at each other. You know, everybody has a side to pick and, and nobody's just saying, hey, come on, humanity. Yay. Yeah. You know, yeah, I know, you want unity? Oh, yeah. Well, now you want unity. It's like, I'm so tired of all this. It's such a I bunch know, of it's shit. A lot. It's like it's like sensory overload constantly. And yep. our and our and our brains, as much as we'd like to think we're evolved as human beings. And yes, we are in ways is that we still have this human brain that when you're constantly inundating the brain with new information and and, you know, uh, apps and the, the blue light and all that stuff that's horrible for us and, and if you really, want to read on the ipad that's not helpful either because no. you got the light you're the so light. right that Books light's horrible are, for you everyone i've ever known that i respect reads a book if they can't sleep before they go to bed the worst thing you can do is turn the news on the worst especially my husband does that and, and he gets angry and then he goes to bed angry and I'm like, well, that's what you get for watching the news. Like, yeah, you know, so I will say that the best thing for anyone out who's listening to this is, you know, if you're really struggling or having nightmares or having trouble getting to sleep, read it, try reading a book, just try it. Even though it sounds like the worst idea. Cause we're like, oh, a book, Ugh. like at least me, like reading. I know I'm not like a big reader, but if you can find something you're really into, you know, <laughs> you know you're you're a billion percent right because I have an aversion to books and I love books. Exactly, but, but I couldn't like in school. You, I was given Moby Dick to read. It's like. Uh, never, I don't want to read about a knot for three pages, you know, <laughs> but then, but then you give me a book that means it can even be a self-help type of book. I mean, those you can, are great. You can get a Deepak Chopra book or you can get anything. I mean, you were talking about how addictive, how they, the drug companies know that they've got a, a client, you know, yeah. a customer and brave new world, which, um, Apple TV ran the series. Mm -hmm. Um, which was really quite good. Um, there were uh, 10 of them, but it, it's from uh, Huxley's book that I read. And that's what it's about. It's a, really? it's a future and they're self-contained because they can't go outside because of the, because the air. Wow. And uh, they're kept on, on drugs that look like little M&Ms. Do you want the blue pill, the red pill? Um, it's very Alice in Wonderland type of theory. But the idea is that they keep the whole population happy. They're always happy. And it's not human to be happy all the time. You have to yeah. feel all of it, but you can't hold on to what can. I mean, I always, I had a friend and it's the oldest cliche in the world, but it's called disease because it's dis-ease. And it's mm -hmm. so obvious. Everything should be abbreviations, abbreves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. But, it's but true. It's, it's cause people, I, I know people who I knew were gonna get sick. Mm -hmm. I knew they were gonna get cancer. Um, I knew they were going to get, it sounds terrible, but you hold it inside of you or you, you don't let it out. 
even if it's, I don't know, if it's exercise that clears your head, if it's, if for me, it's always, I've got, I'm very, I got to go gut deep. I've got to go where it truly feels like I've left no stone unturned. And I know my wife and I go through this where I'll just take it as deep as I can. She can resolve much quicker than I can. But then I go, well, you're, I don't, you're not fully resolving it, but I'm wrong. I'm just being overly neurotic to make sure that I've put the issue to bed and I've latched every latch and I've, you know, <laughs> scrubbed the floor with bleach and <laughs> made sure I'm talking metaphors, everybody. I'm not I hiding a body. I feel you. I feel but, you. But it's like, I've, it's hard for the mind that you would, if you're in panic attacks, it would mean that you have a lot of fear, right? Yes. A lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Is it based from, and, and I've listened to you and enjoyed you a lot. And Aww, thanks. And so, um, is it come from childhood, do you think? Yes, I um, I had a very tumultuous, unpredictable childhood with my mother who um, struggles with borderline personality disorder. And so I kind of, with I don't know if you're familiar with borderline personality I disorder, am. but it's basically you kind of never know what you're going to get. Um, you know, one day the person can be, the happiest person in the world. And then the next minute they're st- trying to stab someone with a knife or freaking out or oh, so whatever. It was violent. Or she sa- was- yes. Saying they're going to kill themselves or whatever. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, you know, I feel so bad sorry. talking about it. No, I mean, you know, and, and so when you're young and you're in such a like fight or flight constantly, like, Oh my God, what, what's going to happen is, you know, is this person going to stab this person? Is this person going to kill themselves? Is this person going to, you know, you're constantly in the fight or flight mode, it fucks up your your body in terms of development where like my brain got kind of stuck on that fight or flight mode. And so I noticed as I got older that my anxiety, even though my parents ended up getting divorced and I ended up just being raised by my dad and with my brother, my body just from going through that kind of trauma so young had permanently gotten the latch stuck on the fight or flight mode. And so little things would trigger me if, you know, if someone was acting erratic or even if I got too excited, just any feelings would just cause me to go into a panic attack and I would start shaking and sweating, having trouble breathing. My heart rate would go up crazy. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I've gotten, a, am still working on to this day, getting a handle on it, but it's not fun. Like it's probably like the worst. I, I wouldn't wish a panic attack on my worst enemy. Cause I think a lot of people Wait a minute, your you, worst enemy? Yeah, have you ever had a panic attack? I, w- I wouldn't. I have horrible. had many. I mean, literally, when I was sitting at the computer trying to book a flight, um, I've had many panic attacks. I've even thought I was having a heart attack because it runs in my family. And That's what you think. Did you go to the hospital? No, because I'm smart enough to know that it was a panic attack. And I've, How did you I had know? called a doctor because the left side wasn't out, uh, nothing. And, you know... I had an uncle, an uncle died at 37 on the tennis court, um, 39 running after kids that stole his tire. So he was angry, yelling. Another one is 41. He was smoking six packs of cigarettes a day and his wife and he would fight. So they never stopped fighting and he died on the couch. And my dad had two heart attacks when he was 40 and 41. And so I thought, okay, heart attack's going to take me out. 
So it was what always in the back symptoms? of my mind. Not, to, not mm-hmm. to interrupt you. What were your symptoms? Sorry, I'm just curious. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's different well, for it everyone. Was, it was that heart palpitating thing where you can't even, you can't look at anything from the outside. Every Everything, you're, you're trapped. And you are positive everything is just over. It, it's just, yeah. ex, it's it feels ex- like the end of your life for sure, right? Yes, and many people are living that right now. You know that because oh, I I had one three nights ago, and I but I've been doing uh, EMDR therapy, which is supposed to be the most productive. Have you heard of that? Tell me about it. I have heard about it, but it's supposed to be the most productive for people that have unresolved trauma. And um, so basically, I felt like to me in my brain, I go, oh, it happened so long ago. I don't have any unresolved trauma. Like I don't care. I think about the stuff with my mom and her and I have an okay relationship now. And so I'm like, okay, I, I don't hold on to things. I'm not. But as you know, the body keeps the score. That's a book. Yep. You know, and your body remembers whether you want to remember or not. Your body, sense, sense memory. Your body goes, no, 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 no. We don't let it go. So you have to really do the deep therapy. And so what EMDR does is. What does it stand can, for? Uh, you know, I was just going to. Say, electromagnetic. I it's like electromagnetic. Uh, hang on, I'll look it up right now. But yeah, basically, what you do is they um, they basically you do know, they use bring- Jewish lasers? That's hilarious. That lady. <laughs> okay, it stands for. I'm sorry. You know what? It's not electromagnetic. It's eye movement desensitate desensitization and reprocessing. Whoa. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So this is what they do and. Listen, I've been doing it for about six weeks now. And at first I thought, oh God, this is so stupid. This is not going to do anything. But for the first time a few nights ago, I had another really bad, I wake up out of my sleep with panic attacks because they can't really get me during the day because I'm so, I know what they are and I feel them coming on and then I can take like my CBD or something to calm down. They only get me in my sleep now. So Is it a nightmare? Does it no, come as I, a won't, I won't even necessarily be having a nightmare. My body will just take advantage of the fact that I'm, you know. Do you have uh, someone outside? <laughs> Is that your My own? husband keeps opening and closing the doors in the house, and they all have alarms, and I'm going to kill him in two seconds. You should probably just turn off the talk, the yapping I, person. I know. I don't even know how to do it. It's so, I'm just going to text him to I stop I think it's uh, star seven. Sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, basically, I... Now they only get me in my sleep. And so the EMDR, what they do is it's you, well, I do it remotely because of obviously COVID, but they bring you to some of the darkest points in your life. They ask you how um, bothersome they are to you on a scale of one to 10. And then they break it down till it's nothing. They take it like to, to each moment, to each thought, to each sensitivity of that uh, event that happened to you and they break it down and they br- re- help you to reprocess it and to think like, oh, take yourself back there, comfort yourself, remind yourself that you're safe now and that kind of thing. And then you follow this little ball, or at least I do. I follow this little ball on a screen with my eyes and it kind of like not hypnotizes you, but it helps you reprogram. That's what it is. It's like a weird, but I've noticed, like I said, I at first I was like, oh, this is bullshit in my head, you know? But then now I'm like, I had a hor- like a horrible call 911 panic attack the other night and I didn't call 911. My heart rate will go up to like 160 and my blood pressure will go up to like... Do you have a blood pressure uh, thing in your house so you yeah. know where it was? Because I have to check... I check myself because sometimes it gets so high that it is in heart attack zone and then I have to take a beta blocker. So 
Um, and that's all just trauma. It has nothing to do with my health. I've had my heart checked, you know, every which way, but it's the trauma and the, the adrenaline flooding your system, getting ready to have you run from a lion, but I was fast asleep. So it's just, it's just horrible. It's like just re my wires are all crossed. And so I have the blood pressure cuff. So I'll like check my blood pressure was like 143 over 95. My heart rate was 160. And normally I would have called an ambulance because that's so high, you know. It says on my it says on my little thing hypertensive crisis, you know, which is technically a heart attack. And so then now I just stopped and I thought and I was like, you know what? Take your beta blocker, give it a minute. If you're still not, if your heart rate still doesn't go down, then call nine one one. But and what's you know, a beta blocker? What's it made of? A beta blocker is uh, something that ha- it has a chemical in it that slows the heart rate. So they give. It's them not like a melatonin, is it? Oh, no, beta blockers are usually for given to people that. Um, sometimes they give them to comedians because they get nervous to perform. It basically blocks your heart rate from going higher than like 90, you know? Is it like an so herbal like, Xanax? Is that no, what it is? No, it's not herbal. It's a, it's a prescription. Oh, it's so a drug. It's, so it's like a Xanax a or, or yeah, a, a um, um, Ativan so type thing? It's not like an, an Ativan or Xanax in terms of like it doesn't calm you down. Like it doesn't make you sedated. It just makes your heart rate. It opens your blood vessels in your heart so that your heart can get more thorough oxygen, and so your heart beat gets slower. So it's good. For I, that would I'd probably attacks. have a heart attack on that because I would break try to break through it. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a little weird when you're ha- so. Whenever I this happens to me, I usually have to take something to calm my nerves, and then also the beta blocker because it's weird when you're having a panic attack and then your heart's going boom, boom. Boom, and it's going slow, and then you're like, okay, is it going to stop? Am I dying? So um, <laughs> it's like too fast or too slow. Like, like I'm like the like, like I can't. It's like I can't win. But um, well, I wish yeah. that for you that you could have some calm because you deserve it. Yeah, well, I'm working on it. I definitely right. have like well, really good. I've have like a lot of good days lately. Knock on wood. I'm, you know, I'm. I'm knocking on wood because I'm so superstitious. Um, but yeah, I have a lot of good days lately. But I'm really like I have to say I'm really like I'm really impressed by people like you who have you know demons and have struggled, but have you fought through it and I know, fight through you, it all the time though. You do like therapy, I, and- I basically the reason I I know I'm um, I love what I do is that I for the most part my wife might disagree, but I for the most part I wake up wanting to do something good you know good. it's like unless uh, and i wake up thinking it's you know okay uh, i'm ready to go and then you turn on the news and then it's like a big barrel of shit just dumped on your head as soon as you it's like stepping out on the front porch you know oh take the day in and just and then someone just throws a bag of shit at you you're like hey <laughs> yeah, it's always go, shit. And some of the shit yeah. gets in your mouth you're like <laughs> right yeah that's horrible just, yeah yeah and then and then you hear the hatred that's out there and all of the lies that you hear that you go, well, no, people can't believe that. That what? Yeah. And that drives me crazy. But I'm, I just want peace of mind is like, that's the gift. Right. And your health, good health yes. and peace of mind and have love in your life. Um, even through this. And I know that, a lot of people can't have it right now. And you know, there are a lot of single people. Maybe they don't even have family much to speak of. So they're alone. So that's yeah. why, you know, they'll turn to you. They'll listen to you. Yeah, you know? they love to have the, the podcast or something to listen to is really helpful to a lot of people, you know. 
Yeah. Um, I have another worst first for you. That yeah, that'll be please. that'll be lighter. I was just about to ask you. I have a good one. I have a good one. Like first rock and roll gig. Those are always oh, fun. Oh no way! Okay, wait. We're gonna take a quick break, guys, with Bob Saget, and we'll be right back on worst firsts. Okay, we're back. Bob's got another worst for us. Bob, I love that you came prepared with worst because I get so many people on the podcast and like I love just talking to people about life. But, you know, the whole premise is some of the worst stuff you've ever been through. So I love that you came. Well, as soon as I knew that that was the premise, I mean, my God, my brain just had I had 10 things come to the forefront. Your brain was like, pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. (laughs) I'm like those little things in Despicable Me. They all want to be taken under the shoe. Yeah, yeah. So here's one. So I had... um, been signed by uh, rock promoters as a as a client when I was on a comedy store college tour when I was 22, mm-hmm. and they were um, he's since passed, but Brad Gray, who uh, was my manager for many years, and then ended up running Paramount, and then we lost him a few years ago, and and he worked for Harvey Weinstein, who was a rock promoter, so they were my managers when I was 22 years old. Wow. Imagine that. And do they you have were any stories Buffalo. about him? Yeah. Say again? I said, do you have any stories about Harvey? Um, he never mounted me. Um, he never uh, uh, walked in on me in the bath. Um, he actually, I had my appendix out in LA and I almost died and he came to visit me. He was actually, but at that time he was like 28 years old, you know, it was mm. a, a, a different guy, you know? Yeah. Um, maybe not. I, I thought so though. I mean, I think yeah. he was, he was. Uh, the, 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 the success hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was opening for people and I opened for a bunch of different people, but they got me a gig opening at Maple Leaf Gardens. But the big one before that was Buffalo Memorial Auditorium. And I opened for Gino Vanelli. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's saying, I just want to stop and tell you what I feel about you, babe. See that song, how it lasted. So <laughs> that was his hit. And a uh, very nice guy. So I opened for him a couple of times. And then they said, oh, Bob did great. That's 20,000 people. You know, I'm 23 years old, whatever. And you were playing guitar and singing? Yeah. Wow. But, but I, I was. That. But that wasn't my song. That was Gina Vanelli's song. But I would right. do comedy parodies and comedy songs. And I would do stand-up. But mm-hmm. I had the guitar on a lot. And then I took it off to learn how to do my craft. that I Because mm-hmm. you can't hide behind can't be a prop comic forever but now every special i do i've got three or four original comedy songs in it so Mm -hmm. but the 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 nightmare gig was i was at uh maple leaf gardens and i was opening for max webster your husband would know this uh maybe but he would know that they were a counterpart they broke off from the group rush and Rush, oh, I know Rush, yeah. yeah. Rush. So okay, what was left of Rush became Max Webster, and in Canada they were huge. So they were they sold out the Maple Leaf Gardens, and it's I don't know what it was sixteen thousand, twenty thousand people, and I'm on stage opening for Max Webster, and and ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Bob Saget. I'm 23 years old. I've got a guitar on. And, I, you know, I think I was wearing wallabies. I'm not sure. It was pretty sad. And oh those are gosh. crappy shoes. Um, and so I walk out on stage and I and I start saying something and there's like no response. And and I'd played behind chicken wire already. My career was already, you know, doing the road, learning the, the how bad it is. Everybody always yeah. has their worst road stories. Yeah. And they were going, Max, 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 Max. And they were lighting matches. 
And then I started doing the normal thing. You want to see Max? <laughs> that doesn't help me. Right. And going, yeah. And then I think I said, fuck. And that got them to applaud. And then I did a couple of parodies like Elton John. I think I was maybe the first guy to do the most obvious, horrific parody of an Elton John song. It was Don't Let Your Son Go Down on Me. So, um, Oh, my God. It was just horrific. Um, and they didn't like you? They booed well, you? Well, no, I did three minutes. Oh and the promoter God. was Michael Cole. And Michael ended up, um, I'm sure Tommy Lee knows Michael Cole. He um, started Live Nation and Ticketmaster. No, no, uh, no conflict of interest there. And yeah. then uh, I really loved him. He was a friend for a while. And um, I still know him. But he... Uh, He's on the side of the stage and it was like slow motion. I said, can I leave now? And he just, and I, and he goes, he waves me like I can, I can leave. And I went over the mic. Will I still get paid? And he goes, yeah. And I said, well, thank you everybody. <laughs> Enjoy Max. And, uh, and they paid me, but it was, it was disaster. It oh was, my God. It was absolutely so sad? the worst thing. Um, and I've, I haven't had that, I mean, playing behind chicken wire, but but gig-wise, I was watching Bill Maher the other night, and somebody asked him, um, oh, he was on, um, what was he on? He was on something good. I can't remember, but he was asked, do you ever worry about bombing? And do you ever bomb? Someone asked, do you ever bomb? And he said, I've been doing this 40 years. No, 40. I don't bomb. And so... I, I'm kind of the same way. I mean, I've been doing it 40 years. I've been doing more than that, you know? So it's not it's not a variable. It, does, it can't happen. It might not be the best. It might not be my A game. I'm trying to do my A game. And I'm trying to adapt, especially now when I get to go out. I think I go back on tour as a stand-up near the end of the year is the plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I will do wherever i am i'll i'll i'm just trying to put people together you know yeah uh, i'm not gonna get on stage and talk about unity unless it's you know sarcastic so they can cheer it I, I i'm trying to please all sides and and all people i don't like that there's sides but that's where we're at do you um, enjoy stand up like when you go or are you I, like this is what you live for you i have it. it's one of the things i have to do you have to do i hear that from a lot of comedians that they are like i don't have a choice like this I, is my yeah. Well, it's like music. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it you have to do it. If you're, you know, you can retire, but you don't end up retiring. No. Like stand up. I mean, Steve Martin retired, but not, he really didn't. I mean, right. he and Marty Short went out and did this amazing show. And Steve first went out to get the audience vibe with his band, his bluegrass band. And, mm-hmm. you know, and he's an exception. He's one of the best that's ever been in anything. He's, he's, yeah. he's, he's brilliant and beautiful. But, um, and you know, I was I know that within that show with the the band, it was twelve minutes a new stand up because he's Steve Martin. So I just look to what makes me as funny as I can be, and I feel like I haven't. I was talking to Bill Burr, and I said I haven't even done what I came here to do yet, and he said, "Well, you better fucking hurry up." <laughs> I love him. He doesn't give a fuck. He's like, "Well, you better fucking." It's so yes. funny because people accuse him of stuff and he's exactly. He doesn't he, care. He, he doesn't care, but he's also I, one of the best people yeah, alive. He, so, he gives zero fucks. He's hilarious. Um, that's so cool to hear. So has it been hard because obviously you haven't been able to be on the road and you haven't been able to. It has been. I, yeah. I'm about to 
well, right now, when this is uh, coming out right now, I am in the Cayman Islands. Um, at this moment, I'm not, but you know, right. I, I, I'm leaving in a, in a couple Island. days for the Cayman Islands to shoot a movie. So I'm going to be oh. acting in a film under very careful. I go into quarantine for two weeks. If you if you break quarantine, you go to jail for three months in the Cayman Islands. So you know wow. what happens there. I don't That's feel like having scary. that done. Yeah, it's dramatic. My Lord, jail in, in the Cayman Islands jail. Yeah, it's going to be nice. Oh my God, <laughs> right? It's the, just like the bars are made out of coconuts. You're like, this isn't that. <laughs> this isn't <laughs> no, that. Exactly. Uh, and, and a poo poo platter is. Oh my what you're, God, that's your, that's your butt. That's so exciting, though, that you're you're going to shoot a movie. That's fun. It's yeah, it's fun. It's an acting part, so I'll be acting. And um, and then I'm, I'm just finishing a second draft on a script that um, I can't talk about, but you'll be happy about it. Good. It's one of those I'm, cool things with some with one of with a great comedians kind of thing. So um, I'm just I'm, and the podcast I love doing my podcast. Tell us again on here the name of your podcast so that people can go follow you. And I'm going to be on Bob's podcast right after this, you guys. So make sure to go check that out. It's called yeah, Inside, we'll it's called inside of You? or It's called Bob Saget's Here For You. Here and, For You. Yeah, well, Here For You <laughs> is an actual... Bob Saget's Inside Of You. Well, that's fine. There is one called Inside Of You because today, uh, Michael Rosenbaum, now I'm telling you when we're recording this, Michael Rosenbaum oh, yes. is called um, Inside Of You. Um, and that's so that's, where I saw you. I saw you on there and then I just, exactly. So Bob Saget is here for you. I love well, that. Bob Saget that- is here for you and he wants to be inside of you, but you can't say that cause you'll get canceled. But, um, I didn't say that. You didn't say that. We'll no, I didn't say anything. I'm just, I'm a politician. I never said anything. So oh yeah, so it's Bob Saget's here for you. There is a here for you podcast that I didn't right. know existed or I would have Jerry rigged another name. But That's it's okay. it's something I love because and I have a lot of people on that I that I love and some that I just am interested in and uh, new friends like you. That's why we're we're baseball card trading our podcast, which is That's fun. why you do what you do on here. Um, so, guys, yeah, make sure to go check out Bob's podcast. Make sure to follow Bob on Instagram. Just at Bob Saget on Instagram, right? You're just yeah, Bob. That's and what I Twitter thought, yeah. and Bob Saget uh, and Twitter I'll tell you and my everything. Dates and- yes. I'm so excited and I've loved having you here. This was thank such a, you. a treat. And thank you for coming so prepared with your worsts. You were, you were always, one of the most prepared guests. I wish I could do innuendo still because I was going to say I always come prepared. But you can't say that because then people go, oh, you're a filthy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you eat babies in a pizza place. You know, I'm not. I'm just, you I still like. still have that, like, you're still, because you're like. It's like when in the 90s you could say, like, whatever you wanted and, and now you can't say anything. So you have to be. Yeah. Something. I do though. I okay. still do, and I and I was doing some stand up. I did a couple things. I went to do Dave Chappelle's comedy camp, um, mm-hmm. and I was there with um, and Louis C.K. was there, and uh, Chris Spencer and Chris Tucker and Darnell and Michelle Wolf, and I just loved every second of it. But we had to close down because there was one person that had some COVID, and so oh, I, I heard about that actually. I heard yeah, about that. And yeah. so we had to shut. So it was the last show. I was there. That was in Texas, right? Uh, no, that was in Ohio. Oh, Ohio, okay. Yeah, the yeah. one in Texas is Dave was uh, had COVID and now he's well. He's just oh, he's wow. working with Joe Rogan in Austin again, and they're yeah. doing their thing. Um, and Dave is another incredibly special, amazing person. So I got to yeah. do that, and it felt like heaven. I am I am a stand up, but I also love making movies and stuff. So I don't know. I just well, 
I try to do a, a thousand percent whatever I'm doing. I'm glad you get to do what you love to do. That's not many people can say that. So you're very blessed. Thank you. And you're a national treasure. I, I am. Uh, are, Nicholas so. Cage is looking for me. <laughs> Dead. All right, guys. Um, it's been lovely having you. I'm so excited. Um, and I can't wait to do your podcast. We're gonna about to do it right now. So, guys, make sure to check me out on Bob's podcast and make sure to subscribe and like and make sure to leave a comment and tell us how much you love us because we need that validation in our lives. That's why we do this. And, and we'll subscribe see you and follow or subscribe and listen and follow. Yes, yes, yes. We'll see you all next week on another episode of Worst. Oh,